0: Welcome to the Arma Energy Drink Big MX radio podcast show brought to you by Fly Racing, Bill's Pipes, W Wheels, X Brand Goggles, and Just One Helmets. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt, and with me on the line, we've got the one, the only Keith Bowen. How's it going, Keith?
1: It's going good.
0: It's it's going great. It's a beautiful Monday evening and uh, it's great to talk to you. Great to hear your voice. Um really excited about this podcast. I thought who better to uh to get his uh basically life story in motocross uh than uh, one of the the great Michigan mafia riders. Uh none other than than, than Keith Bowen. Keith, like um you're you're a living legend.
1: <laughs> some say that. <laughs>
0: That actually was one of the things I wanted to kind of kick, kick the the podcast off with. Uh, we recently had the last National of the Year, a Legends race, um, where some of the guys came out of the woodwork. Uh, Todd De Hoop who still rides all the time, and uh, Trevor Vines, as well as, you know, the the uh, Carmichael's and Emmings of the world. Is that something that, uh, I know you don't ride a whole lot anymore, but uh, is that something that, uh, a one-off race, that uh, you wouldn't mind throwing a leg over a bike for?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't mind. I, I, I would do it
0: um, like who, who do you think would be able to, uh, connect you with, uh, a worthy steed for, uh, for an event like that? Like, would you go, uh, would you ride like a, uh, an older Yamaha or would you ride, uh, like a, a four stroke perhaps? So like, maybe like, uh, one of the, one of your, your championship bike style, a uh, bike, or, or would you go with?
1: You know, I don't, I don't really know. Um, I, I, don't know what the other guys. I thought they were riding. Some of them were riding new bikes. Some of them were riding old bikes. Uh, I, I think it would should be limited to uh, kind of what you rode at at the time. Uh,
0: that would be cool. Get get Stanton out there on a ninety one CR.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You
0: that know, that would be better. I
1: think. But I don't. I don't know. Fair I think enough. there was only one, one or two two strokes out there. I think Tommy Hoffmaster wrote a two stroke, but
0: yes, he did. Uh, and
1: I don't, I don't know. With all,
0: with all respect to Tommy Hoffmaster, I think that uh, people would remember the great uh, Keith Bowen a, a tiny bit uh, uh, more fondly than uh, than, a, than a guy of his caliber.
1: Well, I mean, he did good in arena cross, and uh, that was his that was his forte. Other than that, I don't. I think he did a whole lot but he did really good in arena cross and uh, when he was doing good at it it was when it was really big so
0: absolutely well with um let's not let a single minute of this podcast go by without uh, thanking uh, the one responsible for getting you on the phone with me this evening uh the the great don Schneidline, the don schneider um Former president of uh, the Four Stroke Nationals. Um, big thanks to Don for connecting us. He had mentioned uh, that uh, mentioned me on a comment on Facebook with you, and you'd said you yeah, know I would love to do a podcast with Brad. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your relationship with Don, and uh, just like maybe, maybe a, a story with Don or something like that.
1: Well, apparently the first time that we had met, and and I don't remember that was I was in Italy, Italy racing the okay. Supercross, and I broke my arm. Really bad, and uh, I was just telling Don this story that I don't really remember him being there, but he says he was there. And uh, they said uh, and it was a bad break. It was the uh, humerus, which is a big bone, second largest bone in your body. And it was kind of a I remember a dirty hospital, and but uh, when I broke my arm I thought my arm was on my chest it was over my head and I said oh no my arm's gone (laughs) you know a lot of things go through your head at that time and uh, then I I found my fingers and they were moving I said, well my fingers are moving you know but it felt like I was moving my arm but it wasn't moving so um but then uh, I guess I guess Don was there and they wanted to do surgery in Italy and I said no I want to get back to my doctor in Michigan and which I was um my father was really good friends with the doctor for the Detroit Lions and Tigers and Red Wings hockey team uh yeah. so i had to you know i could get in at any time and and uh i remember getting off the, the plane and my my mom picked me up and said well what do you want to do i said, well take me to doc dave right now she said well we didn't haven't even called him there was no cell phones or anything i said just take me there he'll 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 get me in and I as I was itching the whole way home and I said, I don't know if this is pain pills or what this is, you know, I was just itching. And, uh, when we got to the doctor's office and I said, get this stuff off me. Cause they just, they like just put this wrap around me and just taped my arm to my side. And, mm-hmm. and uh, he said, well, that's like, uh, wool that they wrapped you in. It wasn't a, a cotton wrap or anything. And. He said, "We haven't used that in the U.S. in 20 years or something like that." And um, and I never liked wool. I think I'm allergic to it. And wool always made me itch.
0: Not yeah. good, man. Yeah, that's that's uh, a common characteristic with it. Um, did the prognosis change at all? Like, obviously, uh, they were a little bit more behind the times in Europe. Did they have a different idea of of your recovery rate?
1: Well, they said they told me I probably never ride a motorcycle again. And uh, I said, "No, just." And they wanted to put a rod in it, like they would do your femur. And when I got back home, he said, "No, if they'd put a rod in, then it, it would have shattered because of the way the break was." And uh, he said that wouldn't have been good. So they ended up they had to do a bone graft from my hip, and, they, and then they wrapped it in metal. And and uh, you know, it was that was the way I made my living. He said, "Well, you can let it heal natri- naturally, but he said that would be." probably 10 months to a year and um or he says you'll be back riding again in six to eight weeks if we do surgery and i said well that's pretty much a no-brainer let's do surgery
0: no so, kidding Give me back on the bike uh,
1: yeah so, so i had signed a contract this was in 92 and i had signed a contract to race gps for a uh, italian team in 92 mm-hmm. which uh it ended up not being a good deal, and I ended up leaving and retiring and and things like that, but yeah we had to i had to, i had to take off from there it wasn't good. <laughs>
0: Awesome. Well, with, on that note, uh, and uh, with, of course, it being October 2015, which is, uh, for those who don't know, the month that uh, ba- the second Back to the Future movie goes to, uh, let's step back in time. Let's uh, go back to where it all started, how uh, a young Keith Bowen was uh, introduced to motocross. Um what was what was the earliest days of motocross like for you what was the machine like and uh what kind of a motocross fan were you like who was on your wall or, or were you one of those like emphatic kids that just had to have the next magazine tell me a little bit about that
1: well i i had had some magazines but um how i got my first bike my my dad rode uh he rode some enduros and things like that and uh my mom even rode some they had the old uh Yamaha uh, i guess it would be uh d t one twenty fives two fifties one seventy fives and uh but at church contest, who could bring the most visitors i won a uh a little indian one of them okay out size of a p w fifty or something like that, <laughs> i won one of them when I was seven, and then i outgrew that fairly fast and and uh, Dad bought me a Yamaha Mini Enduro 60, and then I, that's where I started out, It was my first race bike. Uh, we just rode around the backyard and around the trails behind the house. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: My neighbor had raced, and he said, you guys should try racing. And, you know, for a long time, he said that, and finally we did it, and we raced. A, it's a fairly well-known track here in Michigan, Baja Acres. That was my Very first
0: well-known race. track.
1: Uh, it was my first race in 1976, and I, I think I had cowboy boots on, and uh, I, I don't know if I had leathers or you know they were a real leather back then. Yeah. I don't know if I had leathers on, and, and I know my helmet was just, just took the shield off and had a pair of goggles, and and I Probably ended up a getting a uh, guard at some point. I think uh, I was a full face helmet, but I. Oh, okay. I remember I got seventh place in my first race out of probably like 40 and we got a trophy and that was about it. Every weekend from there on we, we started racing and then, you know, dad bought me a RM 80 for the next year and I raced the seven 7- and 11 year old class and, and, uh, mean, he ended up 13th in the state for that year. And then the following year, um, uh, I ended up, uh, I think second in the state, um, then then be, in be, 1978, yeah, I was doing better. Then I ended up second in the state in 1978. And in 1978, the amateur mini nationals were at Baja Acres. And I ended up getting sixth in the nationals for the 87, 11-year-old class for that year.
0: So, so of course you're you're in Michigan like well, uh, very much like Canada uh we invented cold uh you guys get a version of it in, in Michigan uh, what were winters like for you uh and how did you develop uh some uh, some breakneck speed while uh, basically being under a, a couple of feet of snow during the winter
1: well for for a long time, I just didn't ride in the winter
0: and then we started me.
1: getting we started getting more more into it more into it, and we would go to uh Florida a little bit. And, things like that for the winter um the winter olympics during thanksgiving and then we started going down to the winter series uh, but i i started riding 125a class when i was 12 years old I, I outgrew the 80 between i was supposed to ride the 80 12 to 15 mm-hmm. but during that winter i grew like 6 inches. so my dad put me on a 125 and um i Stucked rode 125a class I rode 125 Schoolboy, and then he said, you're going to ride A class. And I says, well, uh, they only had 125A, 125B then. They didn't have C or anything like that. And he said, well, you're going to ride A class. And I said, yeah, but you know, I'm not, not, not going to win. He says, you, you're right. You're not going to win, but he says, you're going to learn more. And it took a couple years before I started winning, and then I started uh, doing good. There was one rider in Michigan that I could never seem to uh, – to beat and that was eddie warren yeah and uh who who ended up riding for factory kawasaki he was on a cowie and i was on yamahas and okay you know we would battle and battle but he would usually come out ahead and then that winter i i told my mom and dad i said i'm riding every day this winter and, and uh i i would plow my track and i just set studded tires and i rode pretty much every day all winter long and uh from the first first race of the year that was uh 1981, then I came out and I was, the first race was at Baja Acres again. And, and I ended up
0: winning by like
1: 30 seconds. So it was, it really helped riding every day.
0: The work had paid off. And, uh, from, from my knowledge, I know that, uh, your dad did, uh, all of the work on your bikes, uh, um, other than maybe, uh, some, some general maintenance while you were an amateur, um, he must've done done some, uh, some pretty heavy duty work to, uh, keep those bikes going throughout the winter. Like we're, we're talking, uh, many ticks below zero. Um, tell us a little bit about, uh, your dad's skill with the wrench.
1: Oh, he, he, uh, I remember the first time we had an RM 80 and he took it to the shop and they had to put a crank in it or something. And I think it was 200 bucks or something like that back then. And, um, uh, he said, well, we ain't never taking the bike back to a shop again. He says, we're going to figure out how to do this. And, and he became a really good mechanic. And he he owned a, a machine shop, a tool and die shop, and a forging shop. So you know, he could make me parts. And, you know, he made us some special parts. Uh, um, eventually, he he ended up selling some to Yamaha. and um, You know, the bikes always worked great. He'd help people at the track. Uh, he'd help anybody.
0: That's super cool, man! Like having a having a dad that's uh, mechanically inclined, making sure that those bikes are always uh, running really well for you on weekends. Especially back in the day when uh, bikes, honestly, they weren't all that reliable. Was uh, Was there any any time where uh, uh, dad was having to uh, like go over and above the call of duty as far as uh, wrenching goes?
1: I remember one year. I don't remember what year it was exactly, but Yamaha, you the cranks would go bad on him. and uh, he would. He would replace the crank in between motos. He'd split the cases. No. Pull the engine, split the, engines, the cases. Split the cases. The yep. Pull the engine, split the cases, put a new crank in it, put it back together, and have it in for the next moto. It's
0: so, almost for to have a backup motor.
1: <laughs> yeah, we didn't have that back then.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> we had to Note do what we had list. to do. Huh? So, wow, that's he, crazy. He, he could he could re- rebuild the cranks at, at work and we had a couple extra cranks and that's what we do.
0: That's wild, man. Um, so like it, I just wanted to get back a little bit to uh, going straight into the A class Um, a little bit of uh, a kind of a testament to your intestinal fortitude to a a rider who uh, a young rider who's used to dominating uh, going out there and and you've you've seen this year after year after year, these 80cc riders that uh, get the whole shot and they see you later and uh, as soon as they seem to uh, get into an A class where um, wins don't seem to come as easy, uh, it's a huge shot to their confidence and a lot of them end up getting frustrated and then before long they're out of the sport but you were able to uh, take your lumps swallow your pride and uh, basically just uh, grab grass and growl to become more determined and uh, it seemed to bring out the best in you.
1: Yeah it took well uh, 79 and 80 I was not winning Um, but I also was riding the uh, 125 12 and 15 year old and I was doing okay in that. I was I would win some races here and there, but nowhere near like, uh, I wasn't winning, um, nationals, amateur nationals. I think I got 10th in the schoolboy class in 70 in 1980. I don't even think I made it to the nationals in 79, but, uh, I was 12 years old and 13 years old in 1980. And then 81 was when I started winning the a class started winning. Uh, uh, I won the, um, Schoolboy 125 12, 15 at the amateur nationals that year in Reedville, North Carolina, and then the uh, I won that. And then the amateur nationals was at Redbud that year, and I got second, but I tied with Connie Feist for first. But I had a really bad moto, it rained, it was really muddy, I got stuck in the mud, and um, and then I ended up winning like the next two or three motos. But the first moto, I had like a thirtieth or something like that. So, but I ended up tying for the win. So I got second that year. And then '82 uh, was the first year for Loretta Lins, and I ended up winning um, the 250A class there.
0: That's I, gotta that, feel good.
1: And then '83. Sort of. Yeah, '83. 80, I uh, I won the. Um, Three classes at the World Mini Grand Prix, three classes at Ponca City, and two at Loretta Lens. So I had a really good year in 83, and then the following week I turned pro and went to um, Denver, um, Colorado, for the first pro race.
0: So at 13 years old, we're starting to win a a races. At 14 years old, we're uh, we're extremely dominant. Um, at, at some point, uh, a manufacturer has to come calling, and uh, as well as some uh, some gear companies that come along with it. Um, what was what was that treatment like, and uh, who locked you up?
1: Well, I I know my first my first year that I got a, a ride was with the Yamaha, and they gave me I think a bike and a thousand dollars for the parts. And I think that was for 1981. And then I won 81. the, then I won the, um, the, uh, the youth nationals. And, uh, I was riding for a, a real d- dominant team, team dynamic, um, we had the Bigelow brothers and, um, a lot of other top Michigan guys rode for, for that team. And, um, we, um, one of the guys here, Steve Ellis, who now works for Honda, but he works in their uh, alternative fuel department for cars. But he uh, he built a YZ100 water cooled, which they were air cooled then, and, and he made he made a water cooled 100 in a 125 frame. And I remember us going to uh, the Winter Olympics that year, and Yamaha had sent their factory amateur guy there. His name was John or Kite. Um, Ron machine also rode for them. The dog, he, he wasn't, he wasn't there that year, but yeah. John or Kite, their other guy, they sponsored two guys, uh, directly for the factory. And you received pretty much unlimited bikes, unlimited parts, anything you needed. races, As an amateur. And, uh, and they, they introduced their new 100 at the winter Olympics with John and And my 100 was really good. And Yamaha says, we need to go out to dinner. And, uh, so they took me and my family out to dinner and says, you know, we spent a lot of money to get our bike here. And, um, uh, your one, huh? 100 is really good. And we want ours to win. And basically if, if our bike wins, you'll be well taken care of next year. And so we had to, uh, I guess it's when we first learned about all the politics in in, in motocross and uh, their, their bike, their bike won and uh, I didn't, (laughs) but the next year I was the, uh, for 1982, I was the uh, second factory amateur rider for Gamaha and Ronald Sheen was also on that team.
0: What was that like? What was uh, running around and being fast, amateur guys, basically uh, fifty feet tall and bulletproof uh, kids that um, could do no wrong, sort of thing, with a guy like uh, Ron Lachine, uh, basically uh, renowned for his uh, ability to have a good time.
1: Well, and uh, you know, back then we, we we didn't know each other that well, and uh, yeah, his dad and my dad became good friends and his dad was had started maximum oil and my dad was making some pretty fast motors for myself and a few other people in michigan and you know they they would talk back and forth and and uh, uh dick lachine ron's dad and my dad became close they talked a lot on the phone, and. Um, Th- th- that was about it well 80 for 80 uh 83 run machine turn pro with Factory yamaha and I-, I stayed amateur one more year and, uh,
0: that was that year that, that you uh, had cleaned up too as well
1: yeah i won i won i won everything that year world mini grand prix which was big back then at saddleback park um uh, Ponca City was real big, and then, of course, Loretta Lynn, so I won two classes there.
0: Right on. Well, we're uh, we're twenty 25 minutes into this, and you haven't done your first pro race yet, so let's uh, giddy up and head on off to uh, Colorado, uh, Lakewood, Colorado, where you had your professional debut and uh, a pretty good one, I might add. Uh, if that had ha- if, if a kid came out and did that this uh uh, this time of year, uh, like, um, in this day and age, um, they'd be marked as, as the next great one. So, uh, tell me a little bit about how you ended up fifth on uh, your professional debut.
1: Well, I, we loaded up my bike that I, we had just rode at Loretta Lynn's. Um, Chris Bigelow, he was, he was, a uh, former Husqvarna and Yamaha factory rider. And he was, he, he was, um, retiring he says my dad couldn't leave work for that long plus my brother raced and so chris says well i'll take him and so he we loaded up in chris's van and went to denver on uh, my old bike that you know against all the factory guys and i ended up fifth overall and then the following weekend was millville minnesota i ended up sixth overall and then the um uh, the offers started coming in for for uh for 1984 I had I had offers uh, from many, Honda and
0: uh, I think. Did I, you have a lot of time on on Millville prior to coming there? You, that's got to be a a decently close race for you.
1: No, I had never ridden there before.
0: Oh, okay. Well, never mind then. <laughs> <laughs> So and, uh, so those two, those two events go down. You're extreme, like you're, you, you, it's basically, I'd say for, as far as a rookie, a dominating performance as a rookie. Uh, and, um, so a couple of different companies come and calling. Uh, the first of which was, uh, was of course was Yamaha. So, uh, like w- what were the negotiations like? Uh, I know at no, at no point in your career did you have an agent. So, uh, what was that like?
1: No, we, we no one had agents back then. And, um, we just, you know, it was like $25,000 salary and all expenses paid and, uh, factory bikes. And that's what we ended up with. And that, you know, for, I guess that was good for back then. You know, you had the bonus program for if you won and that was it. <laughs>
0: Wow. So so now we're off to the races. Things are, are um kind of taking off for you. Two fifty supercross right off the gate. Uh there is no such thing as one twenty-five supercross at the time. And uh um by the end I'd say like you uh you ascended to greatness as far as that year year went. Uh you started out with a seventeenth place position, but by the end of the supercross season we're uh, we're deep inside the the top uh at least the top ten. Um in, in 84. Uh, so what was your progression like on a, on, for supercross? Like, did you have a place to practice this? Uh, what was the, the landscape like for that?
1: No, nobody had a
0: supercross track. Um,
1: you just practice on your motocross track and that was it. Um, you know, we just, you did the best you could. There was not a, lot, yeah. a whole lot of double jumps. They were just just coming in. Uh, triple jumps were pretty much unheard of. Uh, yeah, whoops were you just kind of jumped through them, and then uh,
0: until until you figured them out.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't know how that really happened. Uh, I, I was all known to be a little bit of a, out of a control, out of control rider, and I came into the whoops once, and I, I just said I'm just going to pin it. And I, and I skipped across the top of them and, and they ended up working good. And, you know, before you know, <laughs> before you know it, I had like, you know, that's when riders, you could go out onto the track during practice and stuff like that. You know, now everything's, you know, that no one can go on the, out on the track, but the riders could, and there would be, you know, all the guys lined up there watching me go through the whoops, uh, Bailey, O'Mara, Lachine, Glover, Ward, you know, and they just shake their head when I went through there and uh it, it ended up working working for me and then everybody started doing it, but you had to commit yourself, you know, the whoops were big.
0: I'm kidding. And 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 like in an era where uh just the idea of blitzing whoops was uh just not a thing yet. It, it wasn't thought of. So and uh and, and you were going ahead and uh and, and trailblazing that movement. It was just insane, uh, especially as, as such a young rider. Uh, what were your Yamahas like? Um, you're on the team with Brock Glover and Rick Johnson, two guys who at, the, at that time were already almost iconic in the sport um, and uh, you're this young kid that uh, they're pulling off to the side of the practice to uh, see what you got figured out.
1: Yeah, it was, um, it was the three of us in 1984 and 1985, I believe. Um, they, they were you know they uh they were good to good teammates um, Brock was a little uh, he was all business Ricky still liked to have fun he was a, he was a little bit younger than Brock and of course I was real young and liked to have fun and yeah. but uh it was a job and it, it was it was good
0: well. Uh, the Supercross was successful for you, but uh, your second uh, your second National of or 1984, um, let's list off the names that are surrounding you. Alan King, first overall. Rick Johnson, second overall. Ron Lachine on his factory Honda, which would have been a, a completely works Honda at the time. Um, in fifth place was Mark Barnett. Kent Howerton, uh, eighth place was uh, Jim Hawley, but stuck right in the middle of that is eight, is uh, Keith Bowen on the the fourth position. Um, Do you recall anything about that particular day or um, just how did you, how how did you pull that rabbit out of the hat? Like uh, your first three nationals uh, or your first four nationals, you had uh, uh, four four or five top fives. Um,
1: I think you might be talking about Hangtown maybe. Yeah, Hangtown.
0: 1984.
1: 1984. Yeah, it was good. Um, I ended up, that was my first run in with Bob Hanna. Yes. And he had kind of come in hard on me and hit me. And then the next turn I said, oh, this guy's not going to come in like that on me. And I hit him and he went through the snow fence and broke his full factory shifter off of his bike. And the mechanic was yelling at me. and But uh, that's where we're, Bob Hannon and I first came in contact
0: well, like as of course as a as a young rookie, your job is to come into a series, circle a name on the uh on the, on the, the registration sheet and say I've got to establish myself and uh who to pick better than uh the hurricane himself. Um like explain why you ended up trying to pick a fight with uh with with the hurricane uh week after week in 1984.
1: Well, it wasn't really planned. Um I mean, <laughs> as an amateur in 1983, I rode for HRP, the Hurricane Racing Products, his clothing line. Yeah, and uh, yeah. you know, I, I I looked like Bob Hare when I rode. I had the I had the chest protector, I had the yellow and black helmet. Um, I don't think I had lightning bolts on it, but it everything pretty much.
0: Yeah, um, a little mini me of, of uh, yeah.
1: So you know, I, yeah. I I had looked up to him, and you know, and then he he uh, I don't know, I. I think maybe he saw some of him in me, and uh, you know, because he he told me he says, you know, you're a good rider. He says you you can you can play hard and work the rest of your life, or he says you can work hard and just be able to live the rest of your life the way you want to. When I first met him, and uh, and of course being a young kid, I knew everything, and I I chose the uh, play hard. And work the rest of my life. Option.
0: In, like, um, looking back at that decision now, uh, and um, like to uh, to to basically all encompass in, in that one quote from uh, from Bob Hanna. If uh, if you were to go back and, and chat with a sixteen year old Keith Bowen, um, do would would you advise him differently? And uh, even if you did, do you think he'd listen?
1: Well, be my age now, forty-nine years old. If I could go back, of course I would listen, and I would train hard, and I'd work hard, and I I would be sitting on easy street right now. But for, sure. for a sixteen-year-old kid, you know, you're, you, you know, what do you know? What do you know? You know, you're old. You know, yeah. he, he's he was probably I'm, I'm, he was probably twenty twenty six. He was twenty six years old at the time, and when you're sixteen or seventeen. 26 years old is old. <laughs> yeah. And, cool. uh, you know, I said, well, you know, I'm doing okay. I can do what I want. You know, I don't need to. I don't need to train like these, like he says, I don't need to, you know, I can do whatever I want. I'm still, I'm still getting top tens, but I wasn't winning championships. Yeah, it's not
0: hurting my results clearly,
1: <laughs> but I wasn't winning championships.
0: That's true. Um, so, so, Tell me the the decision as to why you you like, I understand the the Supercross 250 because uh, there wasn't a 125 option, but uh, one would think that uh, you would go straight to the 125 class for two uh, in uh, 1984, um, but straight to the 250. Um, was that more on Yamaha? Was it something that you were comfortable with? What was that? all No, that was all
1: on Yamaha. Yamaha decided they were not going to have a um, a factory team for their 125 for 1984 it was all gonna be two fifties and uh Brock on the five hundred. And their one twenty five was not very good that year. Uh, in nineteen eighty four. So then, You were
0: probably fine being on the two fifty then.
1: Yeah, I was fine with
0: it. It then uh
1: you know in nineteen eighty uh we we uh um, renegotiated a contract and uh um, I signed another couple-year contract with him, but it was to go back to the 125 on outdoors.
0: Okay, so that that, that changes things a little bit, uh, attacking just the series in in a different way. But uh, in in 1984, um, some great finishes and um, almost uh, a Rookie of the Year-style performance for you. uh, And uh, threatening up front, I know you even led a few laps at a few of your favorite tracks.
1: Yeah, nineteen eighty four was good. I ended up I did end up getting rookie of the year for the uh two hundred fifty outdoors and rookie of the year for Supercross that year. And guy Cooper Guy Cooper got oh, rookie of the year in one hundred twenty five. five hundred. It's tough to think if that guy
0: was ever a rookie.
1: <laughs> yeah, the five hundred class. Um I, I can't remember who won those five hundred class rookie of the year that year. Ron Dunfey maybe. Um I can't remember.
0: But that's cool. Like your podium performance at Red Bud, obviously a track that uh much like Baja Acres, you've got some time there, right?
1: Yeah, but that was on the other side of the state for us, so I really didn't ride okay. there a whole lot as an amateur. Um okay. maybe a handful of times. And then of course they had the Amateur National there in 1981. And and, and I rode there that you know, that year. But uh other than that only a handful of times before. I started racing the pro races there. (laughs)
0: So, um, like that, that year was extremely successful for you. Um, the '85 Supercross rolls around, uh, and uh, you're you're an MSR rider. You've established yourself. We've um, we we've figured out Supercross a little bit, and uh, the top tens just keep rolling for you. Uh, other than uh, Los Angeles, fourth, eighth, fifth, uh, you're you're up front quite a bit. Um, what clicked for you in 80, '85?
1: I think just experience, you know, I'm getting used to everything, getting used to the riders that I'm riding against. Um, They started the 125 Supercross that year. So um, that'll help. uh, I mean, a lot of the guys that were really up and coming, they went to 125. So I was with the same guys that I basically was with the year before, because um, I don't think you could not go back from 250. Okay, probably. so
0: that was never an option for you.
1: Yeah, no, never an option.
0: But not a terrible thing either, though, because uh, like the 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 money's better in the two hundred and fifty class, and uh, much like your your move into the A class uh, as a, as a young rider, it, it really kind of I imagine it kind of challenged you, and uh, like this is the best of the best. This is who I have to race with um, when I if I want to be the best.
1: Yes, it was uh, exactly it was. I was used to racing with those guys week in week out. I had become friends with some of them, and not friends with some other ones. But I knew, you know what what was going to happen, who I was going to be with, and uh, started running top fives. Uh, you know, every re- every weekend I knew that I was capable of winning, but never won a supercross.
0: Damn close, both Houston and uh, Orlando, and back-to-back weekends in April of uh, of '85. Uh, can't can't come much closer than that. Um, good performances for you, uh, Ron Heben must have had those uh, Yamahas uh, running pretty good for you.
1: Yeah, Ron was Ron was great. He was in my mechanic for three years, and uh, you know he, we always got along good and. Uh, um, I guess my idol when I was growing up was Mike Bell. Right. Because, uh, he had came to, uh, again, like I said, I rode for Dynamic Cycle, Team Dynamic. and they put on a racquetball tournament right before the Pontiac Supercross that year, or for a few years, actually. Mike Bell always came to play racquetball with us uh, amateur guys. And so, you know, I'd sit down and talk to him, and and he was always really down to earth, and I wanted to be kind of like him and ron was mike bell's mechanic for years and then when when i came along um, mike bell was retiring so i ended up with his clothing company his mechanic uh his bike his truck <laughs> uh, no he he, <laughs> yeah, that, he had work box
0: fans at the time
1: he had worked oh, bikes. yeah that's right that I had production, works bikes production
0: bikes what was that like riding production bikes against, uh, works Hondas, uh, works Hondas in 83, in 83, uh, 84, I believe as well. Uh, and then, um, but even their, even their production bikes were, uh, considered to be superior in, in 85, 86. Well,
1: 1984 was the first year Yamaha decided to go to production bikes. That's when I had signed for my first year as a factory rider. And I, I, were you signed? No, I thought I was going to have works bikes, and then it became, no, well, we're just going to have modified production bikes. And, uh, you know, of course, Suzuki's, uh, Kawasaki's, and Honda's were full works bikes. And, you know, you're kind of thinking you're at a little bit of a disadvantage, especially with the Honda's, because they were so, they looked so much different than every other bike. In <clears throat> um, '85 as well. But then in eighty six that was the the rule that all bikes were be production modified production bikes and I think Yamaha was really pushing that with the a m a and um, um and finally all the uh, manufacturers i guess if they didn't agree, they had to agree.
0: Yeah, they all had to follow suit. Um, but uh, in throughout the year, early years of your career, uh, good friend with uh, the great Ron Lachine. Um, I got to imagine at some point uh, y- you said, uh, Ronnie, l- let me at least get it, take a couple of laps on that uh, on that Honda, even if it's a practice bike. And uh, was there a kind of a jaw on the floor moment for you?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I lived with I lived with Ron Lachine for during the winter in '85. When I was on the uh, uh, the production YZ125, and he was on his full factory 125, and it was just it was unbelievable the difference in the bikes, and, and you know he rode mine. And he said, "I don't know how you ride this thing," <laughs> you know, uh, but it was it, the, the Yamaha did what they could, and it was was not a good production bike that year and again in 84 it was really bad 85 it was bad and and 86 it wasn't very good but Yamaha did the best they could and and made it competitive
0: well, right, and, and like the best they could still was able, you were able to, uh, on this, I don't know how you ride this thing, style bike, uh, second place in the Astrodome in, in uh, Houston, Texas, uh, ahead of uh, Johnny O'Mara, Rick Johnson, um, Alan King, Scott Burns with and of course, Ron, Ron Lachine, so... You were able to twist the throttle and uh, and put the power to the ground on a on a machine that uh, many would consider uh inferior so uh, like a little bit of a testament to your own skill
1: well we had we had some some good some good things i mean um uh I remember when we had some 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 factory parts from japan uh disc brakes for instance um, put those on the bike and I hated it I said not get the thing off I want my disc, my drum brake back." The first time I rode with the upside down forks, you know, I really didn't care for that. And and we got some pretty good parts from Japan, but we still had a production frame, production in an engine, and uh, I was hard on clutches. I remember, uh, you know, now all the bikes have the quick quick change clutch cover. And, uh, Yamaha made me one, um, you know, basically just cut off part of the clutch cover and then bolted the aluminum cover over top of it so they could change my clutches in between models without having to drain the antifreeze and all the other stuff that you had to do back then.
0: No kidding. Uh, like a, a whole different, uh, ball of wax as far as, uh, working on the bikes goes. Um, Honestly, as far as uh, for my money, uh, you you really cemented yourself as a contender in throughout 1985. But uh, 86 rolls around, you're still on Yamaha's. I believe this is the tail end of your second uh, two year deal.
1: Yeah, it's the uh, the second year of my two year deal, Um, and I ended up doing doing better. I think I got some some podium finishes in uh, Supercross. And I won a couple, two outdoor nationals that year in the 125 class. And uh, i yeah, like, Diamond Mickey,
2: Diamond was the on season the, uh... that
0: really puts you on the map. Yeah. Like uh, yeah. podiums uh, at one point, four podiums in a row, um, five in the span of eight races. And, um, uh, As far as uh, um, for looking at uh, the Racer X vault, uh, it doesn't look like you raced uh, the Daytona Supercross but uh, of course I know uh, because I've seen the video um, that that's not true. You were in fact out there in that 40 man gate and uh, uh, I know you remember uh, probably too much about that particular event. Um, Unfortunately, I need you to uh, recount the events for us. Uh,
1: 1986 Daytona, I don't really recall what happened
0: um
1: i always started well at daytona i I was usually in the front
0: 87 87
1: i mean 87 87, yeah 87 i i I almost won the the race there but uh 86 i don't really recall what happened um i I probably crashed uh it was a long race it was a grueling race and it was 40 riders instead of 20 Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had uh, a lot of lap riders.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: two man, and, two um, rows, two but, row start. Um,
2: but
0: from 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 the video that I've seen, I see a whole shot. I see uh, a, a young Keith Bowen going over the bars uh, early in the moto, crash back to about sixth or seventh, and then charge back through to develop a decent sized lead, and then the bike just stops.
1: That was eighty seven. 87, that's right. Yep, 87, yeah. I uh, got a good hole shot, was winning, crashed, broke the rear fender off, Get back in the lead, had a huge lead, I think one one or two laps to go, Uh big lead, and rock got stuck in my chain, and um, that was it. Uh, I couldn't get it out myself. Somebody touched the bike a flagger or somebody on the side of the track. And, uh, that was it. You were disqualified if somebody touched your bike. So. And wow. Okay. Up, so that, that's, which that's would, it, that's all. which Which in
0: 1987,
1: that would have, that was the biggest race of the year, the biggest money race. I think I would end up making around, uh, after bonuses and everything, which is, which is nothing compared to today's world, but probably eighteen twenty thousand $20,000. And I think it ended up winning, Two hundred dollars or something for,
2: for not uh,
0: nearly the the same uh, the same um, result that you were you're hoping for a, a good portion of the way through that race uh, um, friends family in the stands stuff like that uh, yeah my, be, uh, my parents be-
1: were there I remember my mom was crying um, the team manager Kenny Clark at the time he for Yamaha he he was crying and you know it was uh, so close but. It just never happened. It wasn't meant to be.
0: No doubt. Um yeah, tough deal for you, man. But um uh Tough times make it make us tougher, uh, as as you say. But uh, let's dial the clocks back to uh, to eighty six, where uh, I, I got to imagine that um, a man who grew up in uh, within uh, probably within spitting distance of the Silver Dome in Pontiac, Michigan, um, for someone to get two back to back podium finishes on a Saturday Sunday, uh, basically two podium pres- finishes within uh, about twelve hours of each other. Um, you got to be on cloud nine.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, it was only about three miles from my house. Uh, a lot of, a lot of friends, a lot of family in the stands. Um, I just seemed to do good there. And uh, eighty-five, uh, there was no Sunny So Dome race Supercross because uh, the roof fell in. But eighty-six at podium, I think, both nights, and um, I think at podium again in uh, 87, at least one of the nights, so um,
0: yeah, it was That's good. Always right. oh, oh, uh, second place in 87, like uh, Pontiac, like, it was one of those things where uh, the hometown crowd uh, fuel, fueled you, because uh, we, we know that a lot of times guys will have that home race, and uh, they'll buckle under the pressure. You seemed to feed off of it.
1: Yeah, it was, I mean, I, I could hear the crowd, and um, you know, it wasn't as big a crowd for Sundays cause it was during the day. I think he raced at the main event. I think it started like at two o'clock in the afternoon was done by six, but, uh, there were still, they had full amateur races afterwards. There was a lot of people that I grew up racing with in the stands, a lot of friends that I went to, to, to high school with. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I did kind of, uh, Feed off of the, uh, the cheering, uh, the the noise, and everything when when they came around, the flashes from the cameras back then. Yeah. Uh, everything, you know. I mean, when you're in the air, and all of a sudden, the whole, the on both sides of the stadium, the flashes. Erupt it's just, a, it's just, a, it, it's quite a feeling. <laughs>
0: That's really cool, man. Like I, I can tell that it, it, it brings back some super fun memories for you. Um you'd mentioned amateur days and this is something that we don't see at Supercross anymore mainly cuz the tracks have gotten uh way too gnarly for the the average amateur. Um uh, was there ever a time when uh you saw some young amateurs coming up that uh uh later da- later on in your career uh, you'd end up uh lining up next to you?
1: Um I guess it would uh <laughs> I guess it'd have to be uh, Brian Swink. Okay. Um, he he was you know riding amateur when I was full pro and um, Eric McClear. Uh, my brother was really good. He you know he he had a full basically a Honda ride for for eighty six and eighty seven. Um yeah, uh, you know, I, I really don't remember. On, other I, I
0: was just curious as to, to like uh, from a pro uh, as an amateur looking up at these pros and you're you're seeing like that's where I want to get to and uh, sometimes as a as a professional we're able to look back at the amateurs and and, and see kind of like, the kids coming up and uh, who's got <laughs> who's who's got the right attitude who's worth their salt and uh, that that's pretty cool. That's maybe um, the
1: closest would be Brian Swink, but but then again you know they they all went to 125 Supercross first, so that's right. By the time they got to uh, to 250 supercross it was i was pretty much on my way out so you know
0: well as far as um like we've got to head to commercial just right now we're going to uh, run our commercials uh but when we come back we're going to switch colors we're going to switch teams and uh we're going to bring in uh come into 1988 uh where um Uh, There's a lot of things changing there, so uh, we'll be right back after these messages from Bill's Pipes, W Wheels, X-Brand Goggles, and of course Fly Racing. We'll be right back.
1: Hey, this is Jared Stikey, and we're going to commercial. We'll be right back.
0: If there's one item to be picky about, it's choosing the right helmet. I'm Andrew Short, and I choose the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. You, too, can wear the exact same helmet I wear, Trey Kennard wears, Jimmy Albertson wears, and many others, the F2 Carbon is a helmet loaded with details that make a huge difference in comfort and safety. Lightweight materials, phenomenal airflow, and a super comfortable, sweat-absorbing liner, and generous eyePort design to accommodate any goggle choice are just a few. And did I mention how super-trick these helmets look? Straight off the shelf and onto the racetrack. If you are looking for one amazing helmet, look no further than the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. For more information about Fly Helmets and other products from Fly Racing, visit them on the web at flyracing.com. What's wrong, Jeff? I don't know, Jay. Well, you better fuel up with a nutritious breakfast with oats and bran. Oats and bran? I didn't think there was such a. That's what I used to think. Now I start out every morning with a bowl of amigos. For extreme kids like us. Cereal Bees, Emigos. That's what I call fueling for the big ride. Hey, kids, start out every morning with a fat ball. When it comes to helmets, there is Just One. The helmet brand, that is. Just One Helmets is tailor-made for motocross and street bike riding, and now available in North America. Who chooses Just One? Well, for starters, Tim Geiser, winner of the Italian round, mx2 david philliparts vicky golden trevor reese as well as david pulley and you know what so do i i choose just one helmets because they're simply the safest lightest and most comfortable lid available want to know more about just one helmets check them out on the web at www.justonehelmets.com find out about the j12 the j32 and all of the colorways that are absolutely blow your socks off So guys, please head over to www.justonehelmets.com today. Go check them out. You won't be disappointed.
3: WUSA is your one-stop shop for quality wheel sets in America. All of the best components built for the toughest conditions. Hit up WUSA.com, that's dot acom right now, and check out the custom wheel builder selection. Pick your rims, pick your hubs, pick your spokes, even pick your nipples, and see what it's going to look like on your bike.
0: And I want you guys in a set of W wheels. So do what I did, and head to d-u-b-y-a-u-s-a dot com today. W-U-S-A. All things wheels. What's up, guys? It's time to talk a little bit about Roy Borden Race. He's the performance specialist. Suspension, making a motor work, balancing a bike
3: Bill's Pipes, the home of legendary performance. Since 1974, Bill's Pipes has been providing motocross and off-road riders the performance they need. Two-stroke or four-stroke, Bill's Pipes has the exhaust system for you. In recent years, we've seen a resurgence of the Bill's Pipes brand, and that's great news. And that's great news for motocross racers everywhere. For four-strokes, Bill's Pipes brings the RE-13 to dominate the fight on any brand. For you two-stroke guys, the MX2 Bill's Pipes exhaust system is the right one for the job and comes in works, nickel, and the all-new cone-look finish that'll turn heads all day long. Head to Billspipes.com right now and get the same pipe used by... Billy Linovich, Vicky Golden, the JMR Suzuki team, Jesse Pierce, Nico Izzy, and David Coyne. Bills Pipes is craftsmanship at its finest. So go with Bills Pipes and never settle.
0: And we're back. Big MX Radio Podcast Show brought to you by Bill's Pipes, X-Brand Goggles, and of course W Wheels. Um we're still on the line with Keith Bowen. Keith, uh let's roll forward. Towards 1988, a, uh, a, a the year when uh, the Yamahas uh, went away for you. Um, tell me a little bit about the silly season negotiations. Again, you're you're, you're negotiating for yourself, and uh, not come uh, coming off of a pretty decent season in 1987. Of course, we have uh, uh, no wins in that particular season, but still podiums and uh, and and some good finishes. What were the the negotiations like, and um, and and how did that carry forward for you?
1: Well, we had, um, my parents and I had had talked to an agent and, uh, we were going to have the agent talk to Yamaha and, uh, Yamaha basically said, if, you know, if you bring an agent in, we're not, we're not even talking to you at all. There were no agents in, And, um, we won't talk to you. So again, I had to do it myself and, uh, Yamaha basically said, uh, yeah, we're going to hire you for 1988, but you're going to be um, on a uh, five-race trial basis. And then we're going to reevaluate everything and uh, and uh, see if we're going to continue. And I didn't like that. And uh, the uh, Tough Racing, who was pretty much the only uh, privateer team that was on the circuit then, uh, a friend of mine who lived only, um, you know, six or 15 miles from me, maybe, uh, Alan King, he had rode for them in, in 1987 and he had, he did good. He said he made, he said he made good money. And so I ended up talking to, uh, a tough racing and Dave Anilak, the owner, and we had, uh, it basically was no, no salary, but, uh, a lot of contingency, uh, was available and when you rode for the factories in the early eighties to mid eighties, there was no uh, bonuses for for second and third or fourth or fifth or anything like that. So you, you I even tried to get that in my contract a couple of years before. Then and the Yamaha had said, "No, nah, you get bonuses for first only. We we don't care anything about second or third You know, now I think you get bonuses down the top twenty, but
0: uh, for sure, yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, for when, I, when I signed with Tough Racing, it was contingency, and it was down to, like, 20th place. You know, you could still make some money at 20th place. And and like I said, they paid for everything. They paid for my mechanic. They paid for my flights, the hotel. Everything was paid for, just like a factory rider. And uh, they, um, I ended up signing with them.
0: So, uh, I mentioned changing colors and most would say that, uh, most would assume that when you're going to Kawasaki, we're going green. But, uh, in this case, since we didn't, uh, you didn't have full factory support from Kawasaki, you're going orange.
1: Well, we, uh again, David had, uh, Dave Anilak had some, some issues with Kawasaki where, uh, they didn't want to give us some certain things that they had told us they would, um, he he did end up getting uh, getting a factory bike out the back door or something that year. So I had factory suspension and um, a few other things for my 125. Uh, so Dave said, "Well, we're you know we're going to change the colors a little bit. We're going to we're going to stand out." And uh, a lot of people recognized that. A lot of people knew the the, uh, the day glow orange tough racing Kawasaki's.
0: No, that was that's wild. Uh, uh, it seems it was it was a bold move. And uh, what were those Kawasaki's like? Um, like still being a top level rider, um, was, was Kawasaki able to even backdoor you some stuff?
1: No, only the the one bike we got, which we had one set of suspension. Anything else really didn't. There might have been even an, I think it was a 1987 factory bike that we got, so a lot of the stuff didn't fit. The cylinders or anything Thanks. like that didn't fit, but my bikes. Uh, I w- I went back to 125 class for 1988. My 125s were right. were, were were decent, but um,
0: the single side you, ra- radiator, uh, uh, Kawasaki's?
1: Yeah, but when you're not on a full factory ride, your confidence goes down. Okay, so, you know that was my results went down some. And, uh, I was still making, uh, a good living and, and I, and I did through 1991, um, with tough racing.
0: Where were you living at the time? In
1: Michigan. Always in Michigan.
0: Okay. Um, never, never, uh, moved out, out to California other than when you are uh, staying with Ronnie.
1: No, I hated, hated California. I hated Fair it. enough. I hated, uh, hated out there. Hated people. Hated, uh, well, not the people, but all the people that you know when you're driving and you know, it takes you forever to get someplace and <clears throat> i always preferred to go to florida in the winter and uh, you know that felt like a second home to me so i would usually go to florida for the winters and race the winter series and um what little training i did would i would train in florida <laughs>
0: What, what were some of the tracks that you were uh, hitting down there? And uh, if you're in Florida in the eighties, uh I gotta imagine you're you've you've come across the rollerball.
1: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh the roller <laughs> rollerball and I were were real good friends. But we had some really nice. really tough races. He was always down there in Florida as well. We would race uh we'd race Gainesville, um uh Cocoa Beach, Orlando. Uh I can't remember some of the other ones. Um Jacksonville.
0: Your your best rollerball story. I need to have it. Uh this is something that I didn't think that I was going to bring up to you, but uh <laughs> you mentioned Florida and I know that was uh, that was his place to go in the summertime or the wintertime. So uh do you have do you have a, a particular one that stands out for you? Well
1: we 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 would uh we have some good times. And uh his mechanic, Dave Gowan. You know, him and I would have some good times. Right. Uh <clears throat> But I remember uh one time uh Ross and I we hit at a supercross and uh we both went down and, and it wasn't intentional or it wasn't anything like that. You know, I respected Ross and, and he respected he respected me. And uh but I remember uh getting up before him and he was running down the start line chasing me trying to trying to knock me back down. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, just yelling and stuff, you know, I was just getting taken off and I, I looked back and he was chasing me, you know, and, uh, uh, but that that was just probably after the race, everything was fine because we were always really good friends. And, you know, like I said, he respected me and I respected him <clears throat>
0: That's really cool. Um but yeah, I just I like in throughout those years I wanted to kind of get your take or get uh a look into uh, where you were training and, and where you're doing so a lot of your riding and uh having a guy like uh Rollerball uh who uh, who did su- subscribe to the same uh, um have 10 year have 10 years of fun um type of uh, of mentality although uh, very successful north of the border.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was he was the man in Canada for those years, and he did really good down down here as well. You know, he was he finished, I'm sure, top ten in some some outdoor nationals and uh, and, and supercrosses. But when he went when he went home, I mean, he I remember years when he, when he would you you had to race all three classes, and he would win them all.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, uh, if you literally, if you look in the Canadian uh, record books, there's uh, from, from 19, I believe it's 1981 to 1990. I think it's it's got to be 92 or 93. It, literally, it's just Ross. It's every class for like almost a, a better part of 10 years. Yeah. It's, it's 125,
1: and, 250, and 500. And he would, yep, he would win them and, all in the same day
0: that's that's wild and to to know that uh, a completely different skill set of how you want to ride that machine a 125 to a 250 to a 500, like to, to in one day to wrap your head around how you're going to uh, manipulate those machines. Um, nothing short of, of, of impressive. And uh, yeah, I just want to touch on him quickly. But uh, now let's talk a little bit about uh, your, your years at uh, at Tough Racing. I know uh, you, you made a decent living. Uh, like As you mentioned, uh, when you don't have the full support of a factory team, uh, confidence kind of goes like south on you, but you were still able to uh, create, have some good finishes. Uh, Oklahoma city, uh, S- Supercross, sixth place, as well as uh, Kenworthy, uh, Troy, Ohio, you were able to um, uh, pull off a fifth place position in, in 1989. So uh, you're still able to, uh, to put the, the wheels to the ground.
1: Yeah. I had some good, some good races. Um, not as good as when I wrote for the factory Yamaha, but some yeah. really good races. And uh I don't know why I ended up fifth at Kenworthy. I always did not like that place, but (laughs) it was so hot and uh, it was more of a, uh, a super cross track than, than an outdoor track. So
0: just a consistent ride. Six, six, man. Yeah,
1: it was, uh, we had some good finishes though at Tosser and, you know, the owner, Dave Anilak, him and I got along really good. Uh, you know, I would stay with him when we, when we, would go to, uh, to Illinois. I'd stay with him and his family and his, 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 wife his, his two daughters his son we, we would we always got along really good and and still do today
0: right on that and that, that's good to do to build relationships. Motocross is great for that. Uh, I know along the years there. I can't. I can't. I can only imagine that uh, how many times or how many people that you've met along your way to uh, to the, 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 either stayed in your life or, or um, made a, a huge impact on, on you. Um, and uh, it, it's it, it the relationships you build in motocross are are, are often lifelong, and that's uh, what's really important.
1: Yeah, it was just, I get along with with I. Talk to Dave. Not as much as I as I used to, but uh, if I ever decide I want to ride or something like that, you know, Dave is uh, the importer of UFO plastic, and I always, if I get someone says, "Hey, I got a bike for you to ride," and uh, well, then I call Dave and um, the guys at Decal Works, and uh, they always make sure I got the new plastic, new graphics, gear anything like that to make make sure I'm looking good.
0: Absolutely. And, and who better to do so? Uh, UFO plastic always uh, bolts on nice and tight, always looks good. And uh, um, one of the coolest things I remember back in the day, there was a guy that had a Suzuki uh, with uh, a, a yellow front, yellow front fender and a, and a red back fender. I always thought that was the coolest look. Uh, something different out there on the track. Uh, good to see. Um, so, Went from Cowies to Suzuki's in, uh, in 2000 or in, I keep saying 2000, 1990, um, and, um, very similar, uh, performances from you, uh, up, up and down, uh, but, uh, not quite on the same pace as your, uh, as your Yamaha rides. Um, aside from the, the fact, the, the fact that you're not on the factory team anymore, was there anything else that kind of affected your confidence and your own kind of drive to, uh, um, to, to achieve at that point in your career?
1: No, just the fact that that I was getting older, um, you know, back then nowadays you can race to your thirties in your thirties back then when you're 26 years old, you're considered old. Um, I don't, I don't know why it was that, but you know, the, 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 knee braces really, really weren't around yet and you know, your knees would go bad, uh, just, just things like that, and, but, but we, uh, are still with some good results. So, uh,
0: 1991 uh, closes out. Uh, still, some t- some good finish, including a, a fourth place at uh, Steel City on a 500 um, KTM. And um, for the for, la- for lack of a better term, uh, Keith Bowen kind of like. I would you know, you'd fill off the map a little bit. Uh, um, wh- where, where where, does, uh, what happens there at the, in the tail end of 91 uh, moving into uh, uh, the, the years that would follow?
1: Well, 91, I decided that was, that was it. I was going to be done in um, in the U S and I was going to go try to, uh, to race in Europe, make a little bit more money and in um, my career in Europe. And uh, I ended up signing with a, with a team in Europe on the Kawasaki's and that's when I, that's when I broke my arm um, and the team didn't work out. Um,
0: what were the bikes like?
1: Well, it was supposed to be a full factory uh, Kawasaki team um, to race 500 world championship races. Okay. It, it ended up being a stock. They said, Oh, we're going to have a, uh, uh, 500, KX500 uh, factory bikes with perimeter frames, which the 500s didn't have perimeter frames like the other Kawasaki's did in '92. So they basically wedged a 500 engine into a stock KX250 frame with That's with with stock KX250 suspension. And I told them, I said, the suspension is no good. It, it's too soft. You know, when you're when you're a pro rider at the level that I was, you need very stiff suspension. You know, whenever the magazines right. would, would test my bikes, whenever for Yamaha or anything like that, they said, we can't even ride it. The suspension's too stiff. And uh, <clears throat> they wouldn't change anything for me. And I ended up, the, the well, number one, I ended up breaking my arm. I came back to them. Uh, that was in a two supercross race for 250s but then I came back to start testing 500 stuff ended up separating my shoulder and um, just just said you know um,
0: sorry you just broke up Um, what was that
1: well well, for 92 they said promised you know 500 factory bike in a perimeter frame with a works bike and it ended up not being that it was a stock 250 bike with a 500 engine wedged in it, and then, but the fr- I kept getting hurt. The first time was at the uh, Supercross race where I broke my arm, but that was a 250. But it was still was stock suspension in the Supercross race, and you know I need stiff suspension. And uh, but I came back home, got my arm operated on, went back to the team, and uh, they still wouldn't change anything. I ended up separating my shoulder, and uh, uh, I just told them, you know, that's it. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm retiring or I said, I'm quitting. And they said, well, you can't quit. You have a contract. And I said, no, you don't understand. I'm, I'm not jumping teams or anything like that. I'm quitting completely. I'm going home and going to a job and just, just live a normal life. I said, this is a, this is not working out. And, they said I owed them a bunch of money because of the money they had spent on me. So I ended up having to, uh, leave like in the middle of the night (laughs) and, uh,
0: no way to
1: get out of there. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, the heart of Italy and, you know, they bulletproof windows in their houses and I, I don't know what they, what they were, but it was pretty scary leaving. And, uh, I had another another kid from Michigan Eric McClear who was younger than me, but I got him a deal over there, thinking it was gonna be work out to be good, and we both ended up leaving and uh finally making it back home on u s soil and it was uh um, once we hit u s soil it was it was good but
2: uh
1: then i then I just retired after that and didn't do anything for a few years um I lived off the money, little, little, little money that I had left and didn't do much of anything.
0: So uh, you had to have been doing, uh, something like, uh, were, were you, like, uh, doing any, any hobbies, were you working, were you riding, um, <clears throat> spending time with family? What, what, was uh, your time off like?
1: Well, I did, like I said, from 92, 93, 94, really didn't do much of anything. Uh, 95. Okay my grandparents lived in Kentucky, and they had an ostrich farm and uh, needed some help. I said, well, I'm not doing anything anyway, so I'm going to go down and help them with their ostrich farm. So I did that for a while, and uh, uh, ostrich um, meat and ostriches in general were worth a lot of money back then. Yeah, Um, no doubt. uh, You usually sold them by pairs. And and a pair of full-grown ostriches were about $20,000 back then. Okay. So I ended so... up going there, and um, uh, Grandma always wanted to have mates for all of her uh, animals on the farm. And we had peacocks, and uh, one of the peacocks was missing, so she told me to go down to the neighbor's house, which was about, <clears throat> I don't know, half a mile away on the other side of the road, the main road and said, see if you can, if they've seen our peacock. And, uh, so so (laughs) I, I did. And I knocked on the door and and I said, excuse me. Um, we live across the street and half mile away. Have you seen our, have you seen our peacock? (laughs) 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 And, uh, she said no uh, they said no and, and I looked down and I seen the, like a red fender in the barn and I said is that a dirt bike down there and uh he said yeah it's a it's a 91 cr250 he says I, I can't get it running he says if you can get it running he says take it over home and ride it <laughs> so I did yes it was, sir it was a 90 91 cr250 and this was 95 and and, uh, I took it, took it back. And uh, again, I called Dave Andalek from Tough Racing and ordered the plastic and tires and, uh, uh, chains and sprockets and piston rings. And, uh, and, uh, I'd always did some of my own work. So I, I knew how to work on bikes. So I did all that and replaced all that and got it running good and, um, rode around the farm and, and then found out that there was a. A racetrack about ten minutes from where I was living, and it was Daniel Boone race racetrack. And
2: okay, I uh,
1: they, I found out there was a race there, so I said oh, I'm going to go race. So I, uh, I had just I had motocross boots, uh, two ball white helmet, some goggles. I think that was it. I think I had jeans and a flannel shirt and work gloves. I might have had riding pants, but I don't remember. But, uh, anyway, I didn't have much. And I went down there and raced and I signed up for the pro class and I won. And I won about $800. And I said, man, this ain't too bad. You know, i just go 10 minutes down the road, race the pro class and win $800. That's
0: not bad at all. So I, uh,
1: I did that for, you know, what I found out they raced it every other weekend. I did that for couple of months and had um, rode that five-year-old bike or four-year-old bike whatever it was and then I it was only about three or four hours from uh, Loretta Lins and I knew that Loretta Lynn's was going to be going on during the first week of August so I said you know I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, get my truck and go to Loretta Lynn's and try to get a new bike and tell some of the manufacturers that uh, that I want to start racing again uh, you know on a regional level and, and uh, so I jumped in a car and drove to Loretta's and I asked everybody you know, I, you know I'm going to start riding again Do you, can you help me out with the bike and you know I talked to Yamaha and Honda and Kawasaki and Suzuki and nobody seemed interested and I went to KTM who was not known at that point to be uh, a motocross bike they were all Woods and off road, right? They had a, <clears throat> but the, but their little fifty bike was doing well in motocross. So they had their truck there and everything. And I went and talked to the guys at KTM, and I said, Hey, I'm keep Bowen, and start riding again and looking for a bike. And I said, Well, we have a new 1996 bike here now.
0: Take it right now. You can take it if
1: you want right now. I said, Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: so I signed me up. So I did. And uh,
0: how was the bike?
1: It, it was good. I mean, their two fifty was good. I liked it. Um, it had conventional forks on it, and I never really liked the upside down forks. I always liked okay. the conventional better than, from from nineteen eighty eight to when I quit quit riding. I always preferred the conventional forks better than the upside down.
0: Well, they, they, they flexed better because, yeah, they had, uh, they had more flex. And, uh, yeah, I,
1: did, I didn't like the rigidness of the upside down.
0: Okay. And,
1: uh, so I, I really got along good with the bike and I started winning some races, you know, Daniel Boone, uh, Muddy Creek. And, uh, uh, just, you know, big, in the regional races around Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, Ohio, and, uh, hang on, I got to plug my phone back in. No worries. And then the, uh, president, Rod Bush of KTM, president of KTM, Rod Bush called me and said, Hey, why don't you come on, uh, up to the, to the, uh, American headquarters here in Amherst, Ohio. And I went in his office and he says, "Uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of, you know, cycle news was big back then. We're seeing your name a lot in cycle news and, uh, you know, do you need anything else? And I said, well, a 125 would be good so I can race, you know, more than one money class, make make a little more money. And he says, "Uh, okay, well, we really don't have a 125. It's been the same for years. But he said, I'll probably get you a used one from Scott Plessinger, who is their off-road uh, hair scrambles champion. Right. Uh,
0: um, Aaron dad. Aaron stuff. dad.
1: And uh, so I said, okay, so then I drove, you know, a couple hours through Ohio to his house to pick up a 125, and they had a left side kick. I mean, it had been the same since like 91. A little outdated. And, but but I started winning on it, and um, then they called me back into the office and said, "Well, what else do you need?" And I said, "I don't know. I really don't need anything else." And they said, "Well, how about a, a box fan?" And uh, no, 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 go back. What happened was dealers would start calling me, trying to get my number. They'd call KTM. KTM would give my number and uh, say, uh You know, because they'd see me winning motocross races at these big motocross races regionals, and uh, said, uh, "How do we get Keith Bowen to come to our area to uh, promote?" Because KTM was trying to promote motocross; they were already known and huge in the off-road world, but not in motocross. So these dealers would call KTM and say, "How can we get Keith Bowen to come to our area to race?" You know. Workcross and uh, easy pay me. I said, "Well, um, you know, here's what it's going to be. It's gonna, I, I get my gas paid for by KPM, uh, but you know, I got entry fees. I got motels. Um, basically, I need to come home with fifteen hundred bucks or two thousand bucks. And if I make it from the track, then fine. It doesn't cost you anything. If I make a dollars From the track, and it's going to cost you a thousand dollars to get my two thousand. That I'm going to come home with
0: some way of making two thousand dollars. I'm coming home with i I'm coming home with
1: two thousand dollars.
0: Yeah,
1: and uh, so that started going really well, and then so I went to the president, Rod Bush, and I said, "Hey, you know, that was before internet and everything. I said, let's send out a fax to every KTM dealer in the U.S. and tell them, you know, if they want me to come to their area, this is." How to get a hold of me. And, um, and it just became like, you know, every week I was somewhere else, either, you know, Arkansas or Arizona or somewhere, you know. And, and I tell them right up front, I says, I'm not guaranteeing you I'm going to win. I says, but I'm guaranteeing you I'm going to put on a good show. And, uh, I'm, I'm going to be in the front, top five. And I'll be on KTM, which was unheard of then. No kidding. <laughs> and, uh, so I ended up doing that, and it was every week, and it was somewhere different. And i just travel around the U.S. and make two grand a week. And You know, Loretta Lynn's came around. I won two classes there in the vet, uh, plus 25, plus 30. I won that for KTM. You know, so everything's going good. I went to Florida for the Winter Olympics. I won all of the vet classes there. And I get home. This was in 96. I get home, and there's a message from... Um, uh, German team, Silent Sport, KTM. Who, who is the factory KTM team, and they had won the world championships in '96 with Shane King. But then needed a rider for '97, and asked would I be interested in doing it. And so I called them back and ended up working on a deal with them. And uh, and uh, it was a, t- a, a two-year deal, and the contract was with KTM, but also with Silent Sport. I had two contracts and uh, basically I was hired to um, kind of help develop some of the new four stroke stuff that they were going to come out with because the who's were doing really well there. And, um, ATM wanted to be, be involved in the, in the four stroke
0: error, I guess. So you're spearheading some development that would basically, uh, shape and mold the bikes that, uh, we we would ride for for decades to come.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was on mean, a I was, on a, cool, I was on a heavy, heavy, heavy four stroke compared to the Hoosbergs, yeah, which uh, you know, which Mike Young rode, or the Vertamatis, but the KTM's yes. were a heavy, heavy engine, and we you know we tried to shave off all kinds of weight as much as we could, and um, you know I'm racing the, the first started out on a three eighty two stroke. Uh, production bike was a 360, but mine was a 380, and then they became they came out with the 380 uh, two stroke. But then we switched to the four strokes, and um, I mean we 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 tried all kinds of different displacements from 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 450s to to 680s, and wow. anywhere okay. so any I... anywhere from three speeds to five speeds, and you know we okay we finally came up with a good bike and um, um so that's that's going back though i i went ahead of myself too in 96 also i ended up racing the that four stroke 620 ktm heavy bike in the four stroke nationals the east coast
0: the East Coast where uh, a, a guy that I had I got an opportunity to speak with uh, last week uh, I mean two weeks ago uh, Mike Young um, had some bad luck on the on the on the west coast he said I'm driving by myself I'm gonna win myself a championship you guys fought tooth and nail and uh, unfortunately you came up on the ro- the wrong end of the stick on that one but uh, what was it like racing against uh, uh, Mike
1: I, I knew I had known Mike and knew his name, but I really didn't know him personally. And, uh, him and I just, we, uh, yeah, every week we would, we would battle. And, uh, he usually came out on top. His bike was, his bike was good and, and he was a good rider. And, uh, but we, we got along good off the track and we, you know, we did a lot of press, uh, press days and things like that. You know, him and I were, were the, uh, were the writers for that series. And he ended up coming out sure. on top missed- and uh-
2: this kind of
0: comes back to uh, what got this all going Don Schneider um, what was your take on the four stroke nationals as a series uh, this is around the time when he started taking over those and uh, really put them on the map as uh, like not just a secondary series to the nationals it was its own thing it it, it had its own uh, life and um, what was it like being one of the stars of those uh, those awesome series
1: well it was good I mean we we, we made good money and, uh uh, Don didn't do the East Coast for short nationals. He wasn't the promoter of that, but I had been reading, all cycle news was the Bible back then, you know, because you got it every week. And, uh, you know, I've been reading about Mike Young and, and uh, Lance Mail on, uh, on the West Coast, and uh, now the East Coast decided they were going to have one. And uh, it was at um, all the races that were fairly close to my house. I was living in Kentucky and, uh, you know, Daniel Boone had one, Muddy Creek had one, um, uh, Virginia had one, you know, it was all fairly, uh, Redbud had one, but that was a little bit of a drive for me from Kentucky, but uh, you know, yep. it was, I think it was six rounds, but they were all fairly, you know, within four hours of, a. Uh, of where I was staying in Kentucky, four or five hours, six hours tops. So it was a good series, made good money, and, and um, uh, but unfortunately, I ended up getting second, and Mike Young ended up winning. Mm-hmm. And then uh, then I ended, up, I ended up going to Europe. Uh, yeah,
0: let's he, talk a little bit about that. He stayed home
1: to uh, to again race the West Coast. And then, uh, the, but the team that I rode for Silence Sport, they also wanted to bring, come back and race the East Coast Nationals for, um, for, uh, the 97 season. And, um, the bike I ended up racing the GPs on, you know, was pretty much a full factory bike and the production rule didn't apply for, for, um, the Four stroke Nationals. So we shipped two bikes from Europe. And, uh, in 97, we were,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mike and I were supposed to have the, uh, uh, the
0: battle of a lifetime,
1: the battle that, that I had lost the year before we were supposed to have it again. And, uh, and fortunately that, did, that didn't happen. So.
0: Yeah, this, this this rolls into uh, the injury that uh, that he sustained, and um, one of the reasons why you weren't able to uh, listen to all of uh, the podcast that I did with Mike. Um, these these injuries seem to have affect the like deeply affected you. You're uh, um, really not able to um, uh, like. It, it, for me, it was, I noticed that uh, it's a soft spot for you. it's a sore spot for you. Like, um, does this kind of does it also tie into to like uh, the Dave, David Bailey injury and uh, the right realization that uh, the, um, the these this sport it, it really is that dangerous and um, it, it's, a, <laughs> it's a harsh reality.
1: Well, yeah, I mean when when David got hurt in night like, beginning of nineteen eighty seven, yeah. Looking back, my results kind of went down a little bit. I mean, I, I still did good, and I still raced. and But after that happened, I mean, he he was the best. He was number one. And for him to have that type of inj- injury, it really uh, hit home. And And I had hired Gary Bailey, his father, to be my coach that year. So I was with Gary every week. And, and flew Gary Bailey to, to every race. So, you know, I, I could hear, you know, what was going on and everything. And then, um, uh, you know, I, I, looking back, it affected me quite a bit at that point. I said, no, 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 you know, but if it could happen to David Bailey, the number one rider in the world, then it can happen to any of us. And then Mike Young, you know, someone I'm battling with every weekend, for uh, for a whole series, and then right before we're supposed to uh, to have the rematch, he gets uh, he gets injured where 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 he can't race anymore, and i was like, oh, you know, this this can happen to any of us. Yeah, but it it wasn't really heard of. Same level as you, right? It wasn't really heard of back then. You know, there was no internet. It might have been happening, but you really didn't hear about it that much. Not at any top riders.
0: Oh. it, in the in the eighties, in the seventies, it was ankles, it was collarbones, it was shoulders. Uh, knees A lot, were a lot, bad of, a lot because, of knees. Yeah, but you know something that can be replaced like where
1: you're still able to walk away.
0: Yeah, no, no uh, very few um, uh, par- paralyzations. Uh, people have um, basically affect them for the rest of their lives, where they're not going to be able to uh, to walk away from the sport. Um, and yeah, this is, this, it was a pretty serious thing and, uh, and clearly, uh, it, it hit home for you.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, when, when it happened to Mike, um, you know, I considered him my friend, uh, he was a rival, a close rival because we were battling all the time and we were, you know, I was looking forward to it. I had a good bike. And I, I was shipping my bike from Europe to home and he was going to be on the, um, the, the Hoosberg and, um. Uh, you know, which I knew he was gonna have a good bike. He had a good mechanic, Russ Russ Fletcher, and um, but um, I, I was looking forward to it. I said, "Oh, this is gonna be my year." And uh, and then when I got hurt, I said, "Oh no, no." But some other guys came up, and um, I think um, Kelly Smith did good that year. Okay, but, uh,
0: with a a Steve Mathis tuned bike.
1: I don't know if Steve Mathis was t- tuning his Husaberg for the four stroke nationals or not.
0: Oh, that might've been but, when he was racing, uh, KTM that, that was when he was on
1: KTM. There. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know that. Fair but, um, but, but Kelly Smith was doing good on the Huseberg, and, uh, there was Todd, Hoop. he was on the Husaberg, and then I was still on the, the heavy KTM, but we had it, we had it running good. And, uh,
0: what did you settle on for a, a displacement? I know you said you you changed changed a bunch of things, we, we, a bunch of different.
1: We ended up sticking with the six twenty, okay, which is what it was, because um, we had tried, like I said, up to six eighty, but we just couldn't um, couldn't get the tire to last, couldn't get couldn't get the fuel to last, because back then motos uh, in Europe were forty minutes plus two laps, so. uh you know you're almost 50 now, those minute those
0: are long motos i don't know how you guys ever did that but they
1: were almost 50 minute motos if you know if you had a 4 minute lap time
0: yeah But that's like seriously you guys you guys had longer motos in uh, 20 years ago than the pros do now yeah and um, yeah they, yeah it was a successful season for you and uh, you were able to uh, like take that 1997 championship uh had to have felt good.
1: Yeah, that, that was, that was a good, it was, uh, it was good for KTM. It was good for me. Um, everything was going great with the team I was on. And then <clears throat> we go back to, uh, to Europe, ship everything back. I go back to Europe and the, uh, the main money guy for the team decided he doesn't want to, uh, put out any more money for a team so the uh, the team owner had to tell me that they were done and uh, uh, they like I said I had two contracts one with one with assignment uh, for KTM and one with KTM so I still had a contract so KTM said well we're going to put you on a 125 and and uh, Because they had an all-new 125 for 1998, and um, I just, I wrote a couple GPs and ended up 10th or 12th or something like that, and I just said, uh, you know, I'm 30-something years old, I I got no business on a 125.
0: Right. Even though in 1998, uh, washugo 125, uh, national 26th overall.
1: Yeah. I came home after the KTM, um, KTM ride and, yeah. um, That's was again solution. working. Dave Analek was doing the, uh, Smith goggles. Okay. He was, uh, he had the, the truck and would take care of all the riders that were wearing Smith goggles. So I, uh, Said well, I'll, I'll do that. And um, I, I said, well, you know, can I ride too? And he said, yeah, right. I, I don't care. And and uh, so I ended up riding with Shugle and maybe uh, a couple other nationals as well. Then I was on a 125 for that, and so it. You know, like I said, I was I was 30, 32, 33 years old, riding 125 class, and I had no business on that bike.
0: <laughs> No doubt. It's uh it's the, the 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 little zinger is uh is a young man's bike and a young man's style. Um I just wanted to touch on a couple of of events that you hit in 1997 on the KTM's uh on a 250 uh, actually uh, you might have you're most likely on the four stroke. Uh Daytona Supercross and uh you also raced Gator back to a 16th place finish. Not bad at all.
1: Yeah, now I was on a two stroke then uh the 250 okay. SX. And, How was that uh,
0: bike. It was good,
1: real good. Uh, good for me anyway. The power was good, um, uh, so everything. Everything we throw those as kind of like a warm up race, and mm-hmm. then then went back to Europe. And, and but the, but the team was the team I was on in, in Germany, the Science Sport team. They were awesome. Uh, Uli Uli Gerts was the uh, team manager and team owner, but he his brother was the money man and. He's the one that decided. Well, I'm not going to spend any more money. And he was into computers. Uh, his brother, you know, I had the. They when I first got there, they gave me a laptop with a with email, and I didn't know anything about that that then. And that's when we started. You know, they wanted to know where I was and email me every day, and and then
0: so, you know.
1: but his brother just decided that he didn't want to do that anymore.
0: Fair enough. So, so so concludes the uh, professional motocross career of of Keith Bowen. Uh, how much did you ride post uh, like life after moto? Uh, did you still stay on the bike a fair bit? And um, um, did that kind of uh, did your racing kind of get replaced uh, with some wrenches?
1: Well, yeah, I I, I did ride for a while. Uh, after that, I went. I think. Uh, let's see. Oh. Oh three Cole Grass from Suzuki, who is Suzuki's main amateur guy. He gave me a bike and uh I rode Loretta's. I think I won Lorettas in the plus plus twenty-five and plus thirty again in O three, maybe? I, I I don't remember. And then oh four I think I won the no, oh two I think I won the plus twenty five and plus thirty. Oh three I think I won the plus thirty and then oh four I went there and I did I was doing other things and wasn't riding very much but I still went to Loretta's and I think I ended up third or third or something and that was it. Uh but I started wrenching um um uh, I raced for David Analek's arena cross team. He always had an arena cross team. Okay, and then
0: um, who are who are some of your riders?
1: Uh, I raced for uh, Rusty Holland. He he did real well. And he did do
0: well. He's also raced up in Canada. Yeah, time. and I was m-
1: his mechanic in Canada when he rode for Yamaha. There you go. Uh, and then we've then, been in the same then, place. Then, then I also uh, during that time um, knew the. Does that uh, mean you've
0: been to Grunthal?
1: Mm, I think so. <laughs> but then
2: we yeah, then we came that would back the uh ninety nine, two
0: thousand. Yeah, like that that's that's the No, the it was Canadian it had to been National like oh
1: oh two, oh one, oh two.
0: Yeah, that's still Grunthal.
1: Yeah, I had to have been there then.
0: Wow, and that's then cool. and
1: then the um later that year when we went to the East Coast for the Canadian Nationals, I I knew the uh guys at Yamaha, Canada. And, uh, I can't remember their names now, but they said, Hey, we're coming out with a new, uh, two fifty And, uh, I said, well, uh, I wouldn't mind riding some vet classes on, uh, the day before the Canadian nationals to, you know, I'll, I'll help you with your bikes. We were, I was, you know, Rusty was on Yamahas yeah. I so I ended up racing a few of those and I, I think I won all of them. And I remember at, uh, at Walton that year, I would won the, uh, plus 30 and, and went to this trophy presentation and the trophy presentation took forever and they were handing out beer and, and the other mechanics were waiting for me at the truck. And, uh, I came back with like t-shirts and trophies and everything. I was drunk and, <laughs> And uh, they're like, "Where you been?" I "I don't know. They gave me all this stuff, so
0: (laughs) that's beautiful. You're you're like a a celebrity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, was like a good Canadian time. Canadian Nationals, good, good reaching, time. and uh, yeah, that, that kind of brings you to what you do now, uh, working, uh, working at, a lo- at a local shop, uh, working on everything from ATVs and snowmobiles <laughs> to uh, the odd motocross bike.
1: Yeah, we, I, I work on everything. Um, but, you know, I was also, uh, I started working for Motor World Suzuki because they were going to have an arena cross team and they knew I had been around the arena crosses a lot and uh, I was going to wrench for Justin Brayton and uh that at the first round in Des Moines, Iowa, both our riders, Tommy Hoffmaster and Justin Brayton got hurt. So uh they had to bring in some filling riders and it ended up being um uh Brandon Jessman. Okay. And uh no before that I, let's take that back, it was Eric Sorby. And so I rinsed on him. His bikes for a couple of weeks, and then uh, what was that like? It was good. I got along really good with all the uh, uh, French guys that I've worked for. But at first, it was Eric Sorby, and then I worked for Brandon Jessamine and Jessiman had worked out a deal with him that if he did so good in the uh, arena cross that he would, um, uh, they'd bump him up to their supercross team. And and he did really well. So they, um, Jessamyn said, well, I want to bring uh, Bowen with me. So I went to work for, it was the same team, but they had two separate teams within the team. So I went to work for their Supercross team with Paul Lindsay and Motor World, Suzuki. Okay. And ended up working for Jessamyn that year. Through Supercross, and he had a few good races. And then uh, for the next year, they switched to Yamaha, and uh, uh, Stefan Rencata, another French rider, he he signed with them, and I went to work for him, and did that for a year. And then <clears throat> um, for the next year, it was David Volumen. So I had three French riders. I was a mechanic for the
0: Cobra. That's pretty cool. Didn't like, speak uh, any a French. A guy who <laughs> didn't speak any French, but working with the French riders and doing well with it. Um, that that's pretty cool, man. Um, what was it like working for the Cobra? That's a guy who um, basically he beat McGrath and Ricky when nobody could. But,
1: uh, yeah, it was it was good. I mean, a lot of people had warned him that had warned me rather that he was really picky and that he uh, he was he was hard to work with. And, uh, I remember when I first met him and I said, uh, do you know who I am? And he said, yeah. I said, do you know, I used to race and everything, right? And he said, yeah. I started I out for factory Omaha, you know, just like you. And, uh, I said, uh, here's the deal. I said, I'll do anything you want to make your bike better. I said, but don't come yelling at me after a race saying that, that uh, you know, this is not what you wanted and all that. And, and he says, okay. (laughs) And he was easy to work for after that. I mean, I don't know if it's just from what I said, you know, right up front or, or, or what it was, but I had no problems with David, you know, and and when he was doing riding and stuff and practicing, you know, I knew the bike was working good. And,
0: uh,
1: it, it ended up we had a good, good season. And then, uh, I just, after so many years of being on the circuit as a rider and so many years of being on the circuit for, as a mechanic, I just, you know, I'm ready to stay home. And so I started working for the dealership and, and, uh, switched around a little bit. And then uh, the dealership I'm working for now, I worked for them for three or four years. And then I went to work on some trucks as a diesel mechanic. And decided I'd try that for a couple of years and then it just wasn't, uh, I, I was learning it all really good and really fast and I could do it. But my, my love and everything was, was for motorcycles. So I'm back at the, the, the shop, uh, where I was before I went and worked for trucks and they have a suspension company tech care suspension and uh i I don't really do a lot of suspension or anything like that but i work on street bikes dirt bikes four-wheelers a lot of four-wheelers a lot of polarises and uh um snowmobiles
0: that's cool man so you you've literally uh you've kind of gone everywhere done everything in the sport uh in uh in motocross and as well as uh kind of um a journeyman of sorts as far as, uh, wrenching goes. Uh, I got to imagine, uh, your dad must have passed on a lot of knowledge, uh, to you, to you as well as, uh, doing some work of your own bikes, uh, growing up.
1: Yeah, he, he did. And, uh, in fact, when I came back from, uh, from Europe to race the, uh, 97 four-stroke nationals, um, my mechanic that I had in Europe, he, he couldn't come over here for some reason. I don't know if it was a visa or I, I can't remember, but, and, uh, the, the the team says, "Well, um, can you get a mechanic?" And I says, "Well, I I'd like for my dad to do it. You know, he was my mechanic when I was an amateur, and he's never been my mechanic as a pro, and and I'd like for him to do it. So, so my dad did it. He he uh, he put off his work, and and uh, for the six or seven rounds that we had for. For the four short nationals, and my dad became my mechanic for those, and 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 we won the championship together. So that was a really big deal for me, and and hopefully for him.
0: No kidding, no. That that's that is an understatement. I mean, um, any rider who grows up with a parent who's on the sidelines or on the track side that they watch you develop from the first days of of riding at all to um, to, to to rise to, to however high you can take your skills. But there's a special bond between uh, a father and son or a parent and a, and a child that uh, is, is completely. Like, it's, it's unlike anything else in the world. And to be able to take on a series like that and uh, collect your 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 AMA number one ch- uh, plate uh, with your dad spinning the wrenches, and uh, that that had to have been a special moment, especially uh, when you would have clinched the title. Um, do you remember what was on the pit board?
1: No, I don't remember what was on the pit board, but he, um, we didn't have any breakdowns, and we won the championship. So... He, he he did something right. <laughs> so I even remember when, back when I was racing Yamahas and and I was having a, a hard time with, uh, I, I can't remember what year. It might have been 85 or 86. It was one of those two years. I really didn't care for the engines that the Japanese would, had come up with or with any of the guys that had came up with in California. And dad did me an engine and, you know, ported it and everything. And, and uh, I ended up racing with it. And uh, and and doing better, and so he he ended up doing, I believe, Brock Glover's and Rick Johnson's bike. So it must have been eighty five. Dad did the engines on those. For
0: that's pretty cool. And knowing, um, uh, like, uh, in eighty four, um, that's the year where Rick Johnson wins the championship. Was he working on that thing?
1: No, it wasn't eighty four. Okay. I think it was eighty five. And then, and then they, um, you know, Yamaha ended up. Um, doing it, doing the, uh um, you know, matching everything. But at first it was, it was bad that did the engine and it was, it worked really well.
0: That's cool, man. Like, uh, to be able to, to pass on, uh, some skills like that. Unfortunately, uh, uh, my dad, not so much inc- mechanically inclined, but, uh, he's, he's taught me how to lay a pretty mean brick. I don't know if that's relatable.
1: Oh, well, <laughs> I don't know. That's what you do. I mean, I couldn't really lay <laughs> one
0: that's that's true yeah it's it's definitely a skill um before keith before i let you go uh and basically uh get this up to the uh the two hour mark i i wanted to ask you the uh the big mx three questions uh just some some questions that we we want to wrap, wrap this thing up uh with a pretty bow um three questions to cap off the interview are you are you ready for them sure uh at, at what point or what year uh in your in your career did the equipment change the most drastically, whether it be for the better or for the worse? Um what what was the the, the that particular year or a change of equipment? Uh I'd say
1: eighty eight eighty seven to eighty eight with the uh okay. the uh upside down forks. And I don't think it was for the better.
0: <laughs> no. And of course, yeah, like a Kawasaki upside down forks and going from a factory bike to a production bike. Uh, the first time out on the Kawasaki, uh, did you kind of look down at the thing and say, this is what I'm going to have to compete on?
1: No, that that wasn't it at all. I mean, for, probably till 1991, I, I used conventional forks on my bikes uh i okay. i um I just did not like the upside down down forks, you know but until the point because they always hung down a lot further, where I was the only one with conventional forks and going up to take off of jumps or something, the uh bottom of the forks would drag so okay and then then I started to have to use the uh the upside down forks. Or yeah are the, the or you know the forks they use now because they don't hang down, they didn't hang down as far, so you didn't catch them on the ruts,
0: yeah, if you're the only guy out there in with uh conventional forks, uh, you'd be the only one dragging uh those through the mud,
1: yeah, through the ruts, through the turns, everything, and then when that started off affected off of me face. when that started affecting me, especially when was on a jump face and it was dangerous, then I had to change.
0: There you go. Uh, second question: Would you ever consider going back to Rhett, uh, race either a vet national or uh, or a Redlands Championship uh, and go back and, and do that again? Mm,
1: I've, I did that before, and I don't yeah. don't think I would do that now, just because I don't want to put in the work and the effort that it would take, uh, especially at my age. Because there's guys like uh, like John Grury who's won uh, 45 plus. For the last two years in a row, and he rides almost every weekend, and, and I, don't, I don't want to put in that effort.
0: Absolutely, yeah, no. Uh, Gruy is a guy who uh, is. Constantly uh, fighting tooth and nail with, with Todd De Hoop. those guys are uh, friends and rivals, and uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty cool to see those guys ride. But uh, they're on the bikes all the time. I don't know if you you'd have time for that, or like you said, have interest in, in putting in that that type of effort. But uh, um, I would love to hear to hear you uh, get back on a bike at all, um, just to get, get the rust off and uh, and 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 feel uh, the bike underneath you again.
1: Well, I know I could go fast for a couple laps. There go. But after that, I just don't wanna. I don't wanna put in that type of effort. And the last time I rode, I I decided I was gonna race a money money m- money race, and that was in 2008. It was a big money race here in Michigan, and uh, at a local track. And I I think I was sore for two weeks after that. <laughs> but I was <laughs> but I was in the top five. I mean, I I have the I still have the speed, but I just don't. I don't wanna put in. I don't wanna feel that that uh, pain of uh, being sore for two weeks yeah. and I don't want to put in the effort after uh, all these yeah. years
0: and you, you, you've you earned that because I spent a lot of time on two wheels man uh, the final question for our podcast uh, what was the proudest achievement of uh, your professional career
1: well um, I guess it would be uh, uh Winning my uh, two outdoor nationals was really good, and then of course my um, my East Coast four stroke national championship.
0: That's cool.
1: Which was the only uh, the only number one the only number one uh, plate that I got from the AMA as as a professional.
0: That's that's really cool. I I I love that 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 series was available and that existed for uh for you to uh to, to collect that championship and uh uh capping off uh, a pr- a pretty amazing career, I might add.
1: Yeah, it was good
0: well keith it's uh it's officially been uh two hours conversation with you uh I really appreciate you giving me some time to uh to go over your career with a fine tooth comb and uh pick out uh the many memories that uh you have of the sport and uh I hope that you you enjoy this as much as i as much as I did
1: well I did because uh, a lot of things I forget until somebody asks me or brings something yeah. up and uh yeah you know hopefully uh hopefully it was enjoyable. <laughs>
0: Well, I know I had a blast, and I know uh, everyone who's listening to it, they must have enjoyed it, especially if they were able to get this far into it. Um, like I said, I really appreciate you uh, giving me the time, and uh, we'll have to have you on again to uh, to rehash some of those old stories, maybe get uh, you and Mike on the podcast together sometime.
1: Oh, that'd be great.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, you have yourself a great evening. Don't hang up just yet. All right, Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Big MX Podcast, brought to you by X-Brand Goggles. Be sure to check out our archive for episodes you may have missed. Check out our website at BigMXRadio.com for more content.